welcome to the podcast of Broadway Baptist Church in Lexington, Kentucky, and the preaching of Pastor Daniel Othman, a biblical church centered on Christ. Open up our Bibles to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're actually going to look at the last two verses in chapter 11, but we're going to be focused on chapter 12 right here. This is the second part of a three-week sermon series on David's advisors. King David had three different advisors. His first one, these were spiritual advisors. His very first one was a man named Samuel. Samuel came and anointed David, a young man, David. Then right after he got anointed, he started having problems. He killed Goliath and started having problems with King Saul. And he was shortly after that, he was on the run for his life. Where did he run to when he was running? He ran to to Ramah to see Samuel. That was last Sunday. Today we're going to look at um, a man named Nathan. He was a prophet who came to David. Next Sunday on June 4th, which Zach was absolutely right, we have baptism next Sunday. At the beginning of this service, we'll have baptism. I've got three folks lined up. If If you've never received believer's baptism... You need to see me or Zach Bauer, and you can join our group. When we close this service and invitation, you walk down front and say, Pastor, I need to get baptized. And some of you here need to get baptized. We follow Jesus in believer's baptism. If Jesus can get baptized, you can get baptized. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And what baptism, remember, it does not save you. Baptism is a symbol of of what God is doing in your life. Your old self going under the water, we can't live underwater, we're not fish. And then your new self coming out of the water, it represents death and resurrection. So believers get baptized. In order to get baptized, there's one requirement, you have to be saved. So if you're saved, you need to get baptized. So you let me know if you want to join our group next, uh, next Sunday, June 4th. And next Sunday, I'm preaching on Gad. Gad we see towards David's end of his life. So he's the third and final spiritual advisor. And we don't know, a lot of times folks don't know a lot about Gad, but we need to know about him because uh, he he confronted David on his sin of taking a census. Uh, David took a census and it was wrong. It displeased the Lord. But here we are in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And there's a man named Nathan. And he actually had three different encounters with David. And all these prophets, they had always bust on the scene. There was no scheduled meeting. It's just like they just appeared out of nowhere and they had a message from the Lord to David. And back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, you don't need to turn there, but his very first encounter, what occurred was David was at his uh, height of his kingdom in about chapter 7. God had just blessed this man's kingdom. And in fact, David lived in a nice palace and looked off and he saw where the Lord lived. And the Lord lived in a tent. It was called the Tent of Meeting. That was where the Ark of the Covenant was there in Jerusalem. And David felt like, you know what, here I am in this nice elaborate palace, and the Lord is over here in a tent. I'm going to build a house for the Lord. So Nathan the prophet shows up and says, no, that's not what the Lord wants you to do. God doesn't want you to build him a house. One of your descendants, who is Solomon, will build you a house. That's what Solomon built the first temple there. David started gathering up the building supplies, but Solomon was actually the builder of that. But then what Nathan actually told David, says the Lord will build David you a house, your house, 
will be an everlasting house. It will endure forever. So how is the house of David enduring forever? It endures forever through Jesus. Jesus is from the lineage of David. So that's the house that endures forever through David. It wasn't a physical house because the temple is no longer there anymore. He's talking about a spiritual house. So when we get saved, when we get baptized, when we enter into faith in Christ, we are entering the house of David that we see that the prophet Nathan was telling David about. It's an, it's an everlasting house. So that was the first encounter. It was a very positive encounter with the prophet Nathan. And that was David's heyday. Good things were going on there. But when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11, David commits probably his most uh, famous sin of all, if not the most famous sin in the whole Bible. He commits adultery with Bathsheba. And the way that story started out was one day during the springtime, apparently they would go out to battle. So it would be about this time of the year, it's springtime, pollen's terrible before it rained. If you worked in the garden yesterday, all people did a sneeze, and you're have watery eyes because there's pollen everywhere. And um, David, normally, he would go out to battle with the other kings. But for whatever reason, that day, he stayed home in the palace. He didn't go out to battle. And he's there in the palace. He's um, uh, restless at night. He decides to get up and walk around. So he's out of position. He should have been in battle. He's still at the palace by himself. He's just wandering around, and he looks out, and he sees a very attractive lady named Bathsheba. She's taking a bath. Back in Bible times, you used to bathe on top of your roof. And the reason she's bathing at night is so ideally she is probably hoping nobody would see me. So David finds out who she is. He sends a servant to go inquire of her. And in that message back, it says, this is Bathsheba, and she is the wife of Uriah. So David quickly realizes she's married. She's a married woman. But that doesn't stop David. He sends his servants to go get her, bring her to me. So he just pretty much, he's a very powerful man. If he wants somebody to come to his, uh, his I guess, his, his bedroom in the middle of the night, he can do it. So his servants go and get Bathsheba, and he commits adultery with her. Well, sends her home, I guess, the next morning. Uh, I guess a few weeks later, she finds out she's expecting a baby, sends a message to David, hey, I'm expecting a baby. David knows that she's married to a man named Uriah. Well, we've got a situation here, so he needs to bring Uriah back home, and Uriah needs to go home and spend the night with his wife. Then it will look like the baby is Uriah. Uriah comes home. He's a noble soldier, very faithful to uh, com uh, the commander named Joab. He's very committed to David, and he comes home, but he does not go in his house because he thinks, how can I go home? And be with my wife when all the soldiers are out fighting for our freedom and for our life as, as a nation of Israel. So he spends the night outside at the door. And it's reported to David the next morning that Uriah didn't go to his house. So he's thinking, okay, you come on, we're going to have a party. Uriah, he comes to, next night he comes over to David's party. David gets Uriah drunk. Uriah is the most noble drunk man ever in the history of the world. He gets, him, he gets him drunk, and even as a drunk man, Uriah does not go to his house. He spends the night at the foot of the palace door. He's sleeping on the ground as a drunk man. He won't even go home because he's so committed to his fellow soldiers and the king. 
So the next morning he wakes up, David gets a report, hey, Uriah, he's still, even as a drunk man, he won't go into his house to be with his wife. So this is causing problems for David because David realizes, I've got to do something. So he wants to send a special message to the army commander named Joab. And he writes a message saying, Joab, have Uriah on the most fiercest part of the battlefield and get him up front, and then when he's near the archers, have everybody retreat and let him get exposed and let him make sure he, he gets killed on the battlefield, make it look like he dies. So faithful Uriah's got this letter sealed by the king, running back to the battlefield to give the note to, to Joab, the commander. And it's his death warrant. It says, kill me, is basically what it says, his letter he's giving. So Joab does what David wants. He makes sure that uh, Uriah dies in battle. And what's sad about it, some other men had to pay their price too. So a handful of folks actually died during that. And it's tragic. All, all these people lost their lives so David can cover up his sin. So then what happens is word gets back that Joab uh, reports back that Uriah has died along with some other soldiers. And then David takes Bathsheba as his wife. And that's where we're going to pick up right there. And we're going to see here in our Bibles that three different commandments are broken. The sixth commandment is do not murder. David murdered Uriah. The seventh commandment is do not commit adultery. David was married. Bathsheba was married. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. The third commandment is do not, or the eighth commandment is do not steal. David stole another man's wife. Bathsheba was stolen from, from Uriah. Uriah's life was stolen from him to cover up David's sin. So you see, that's what we have going on here. And David might believe he's older in life. He's probably in his 50s or 60s. He probably feels like, I got away with it. You know what? No one knows except, of course, the servants. But you know, they're not going to say anything. They just work for David. But there, he's got a bigger problem because David is the king. And David is known as a righteous man before the Lord. David was known as a man after the Lord's own heart. He was after God's heart, and God knows everything. So God is fully aware of what happened here. So pick up here in your Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband, Uriah, had died, she mourned from him. You never know if Bathsheba ever knew that it was David who killed her husband. We don't know. The Bible never tells us. When the time of mourning ended... David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. This baby will die, by the way. Now look at this. Here's the key verse. What's about to set up, what's about to happen. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. The Lord knew what David did. This was no, no uh, uh, there's no hiddenness here. He might have gotten away with it with everyone else, but the most important person, the Lord, is fully aware of what just happened. So now we're about to see, whenever there's a problem, God sends a prophet. And this prophet, you know, they just bust on the scene. They just show up out of nowhere. And here comes Nathan. And probably David at this point. He's probably thinking, last time I saw Nathan, he came and told me that I was going to have an eternal 
uh, home, and my, my kingdom will never end. So, of course, he's thinking, well, I want to hear some good news. This is, in his mind, the good news prophet, but this is not good news that he's about to receive here. David's about to have a lot of problems. All right, I want you to follow along in your Bible. We're going to read 15 verses. Verse 1. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he arrived, so he knocked on the door, opens up the door, and sure enough, it's Nathan. And he's going to tell a story. So here's the story. I'm going to explain the story. The story, now remember, this is the springtime. What happens in springtime? It's always around Easter. It's called the Passover. What did you sacrifice at a Passover? A lamb. This is the Passover lamb that we're going to see about here, that David would understand this story because he knows what occurs in this time of the year. So Nathan's telling a story at this point. At this point, David does not know that Nathan knows. All, Nathan's just you know, telling a story. Maybe something happened. There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very large flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. So there's a contrast. Rich man who has lots of stuff, lots of livestock. Poor man who has one little animal. That's the ewe lamb. That would have been the Passover lamb. That's what him and his family could offer during the springtime when they go to Jerusalem. There's a contrast between the two here. The rich man could get by any lamb he wanted. He could get anything he needed. And it says about the poor man. He raised her, and she grew up with him and with his children. From his meager food, she would eat. From his cup, she would drink. And in his arms, she would sleep. So this little ewe lamb was always with David, or with this poor man and his family. He's with the children, with everybody there. He's even, the, the little lamb's even sleeping with him. Who here sleeps? I'd say, I actually sleep with a cat on top of me. Who here also sleeps every night with an animal on top of you? Oh, come on. Nobody here? Well, at least there were four people in the first service. So nobody, well, I do. So Some people on earth sleep with animals on top of them at night. I'm one of them. Not because I want to, but anyway, it's because we have a kitten. <coughs> Cat runs around the house. So this little, this little lamb would sleep with the family. There's a poor family. They have very little food. And you see, they don't have much. So look what's going to happen. So he, he's telling this story to David. And David doesn't understand what's going on at this point. She was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man. But the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him instead. To him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. So understand what happened here. This rich man has a guest show up, and he's like, I've got to provide this man from some food. I don't, have, I don't want to take from my own, my own animal, so I'm just going to go steal this little ewe lamb, this little, this little sheep, this little family, cherishes so much that they're probably raising for when they go to Jerusalem for their Passover sacrifice. I'm going to steal their animal. And I'm going to slaughter it and make it the food for this traveler. And the rich man had plenty of resources. 
So what David's or what Nathan's doing towards David, he's telling a story. He says, David, you are the rich man in this story. And David doesn't know this yet. The poor little man here is Uriah and Bathsheba. They have very little. This is all they had, their little family. And you have stolen from them. So that's what he's saying here. The, the poor families, Bathsheba and Uriah, with their little lamb, their little mares, their little family, they have very little. And David has any and everything he wants. Yet he chose to take from this poor man. So that's the story. He stood on the door right there at the palace and confronted David with this. In verse 5 it says, David was infuriated with the man. Notice he got mad. He hears this story in his kingdom about this rich man just doing this, this, uh, this deed, this poor deed to this man, his family. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He didn't realize he's talking about himself when he said that. That was not the punishment. There was, if you stole someone's livestock, in the Old Testament law, there was punishment. And David knew that punishment. He's about to tell what it is. Because he has done this thing and shown no pity. He must pay four lambs for that lamb. In the book of Exodus, if you stole some man's lamb, you were to pay four lambs for that lamb. That was theft. Theft of livestock. That was the proper payment. Four lambs. But David said, no, he shouldn't just pay four lambs. That man, he was so mean. He was such a thief. He was so heartless killing this animal whom this little family loved so much. He even deserves to die for this. Now, David is upset over this story. David doesn't realize this entire parable is about him. He hasn't realized this yet. Nathan is speaking what the Lord wants him to know. Now look at this. Verse 7 is the key verse right here. Verse 7, Nathan looks at David and he replies after he says he deserves to die. You need to pay him his four lambs. Nathan replied to David, you are the man. David, this is you. And then he goes on to give a history of David's life. That must have been shocking for David said, David, I'm telling this story about you. You're the one who stole from, from Bathsheba. You killed her husband. You stole her as a wife. She wasn't yours. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and rescued you from Saul. That's what we looked at last week. Samuel went and anointed David out of the shepherd field. Remember? God chose the house of Jesse. and says, bring your boys. Somebody, God, uh, Samuel wants to have a sacrifice. And they brought his six sons. They didn't even bring the last son. They brought their sons in, and there was still one in the field. And God kept telling Samuel, no, no, no. None of these are going to be the king. And Samuel saying, There's a, are there any more sons? There's got to be some more. God led me here. And someone's going to get anointed as the new king to replace Saul. And they said, yes, there's still one more, but he's a shepherd. He's watching the sheep in the fields. They had to go out to the fields to grab David. David didn't even get the invitation to meet Samuel the prophet. Yet he was the one whom God had chose right there. 
That was last Sunday's sermon. And God is reminding David, David, I'm the one who anointed you. All that you have came from me. And it says you were rescued from Saul. We see that so much in the book of 1 Samuel. David is always so close to death, yet because the Lord has anointed and protects David, he never is caught and killed by Saul. It was the Lord who protected David. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that was not enough, I would have given you even more. He said, David, anything you would have wanted, the Lord is saying, I would have gave it to you. If you, didn't, if you felt you were inadequate, if you needed more, I would have gave you more. God is reminding David, all that you have came from me. All that you are, who you are as a person, all of your military victories, it came from the Lord. That's what, the, that's what Nathan is reminding David of right here. And keep going here in your Bibles. This is the problem what David did. These are the commandments he broke. Verse 9, Then why have you despised the Lord's command by doing what I consider evil? He broke the sixth commandment, do not murder. He broke the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. He broke the eighth commandment, do not steal. This man is a wicked man, David is. He is breaking these commandments. He's despising the Lord. And he goes on to say, You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you took his wife as your wife. You murdered him with the Ammonite sword. Now, therefore, the sword will never leave your house because you despise me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. David stole another man's wife. He killed Uriah. Bathsheba was not his wife. And the Lord is not pleased at all with what David did. And it says there, because of your wickedness, David, the sword will never leave your home. Like, you will have family problems. So I'm going to tell you about David's family problems. This, this right here is the beginning of the fall for David. David starts having problems. David had a son, named, his oldest son was named Amon. David had a daughter named Tamar. Tamar and Ammon had different mothers, so they would have been half-brothers and half-sisters. Ammon raped Tamar. So right, that, right, I mean, two chapters after this chapter, he, you can literally see his family falling apart right there. And then David had a third son. His third oldest son was named Absalom. Absalom became angry at Ammon for raping Tamar. Absalom goes and kills David's son, kills David's other son. Absalom kills Amnon. Right there, their family's just falling apart. One brother's killing another brother. Then Absalom decides, you just keep going later on in David's life, he's having all these family problems now. Absalom decides he wants to be king. So what does he do? He starts standing outside the city gates, and when people are entering the city to talk to David, he starts speaking on behalf of his father. For two years he did that and started becoming a people's man to win over the people. Then he leads a revolt against his father. So he's trying to steal his dad's kingdom. 
All of this is occurring because of the sin with Bathsheba. David was known as a spiritual man, but after the sin, that influence, it began to dis- diminish. He, was, he all of a sudden was no longer perceived to be the righteous king. He was the, the man after God's own heart, but after this half occurred, he didn't have that same respect, and he certainly didn't have it with his family. You can literally see David's going to repent of this sin of committing adultery with Bathsheba and murdering Uriah, but the consequences for his sin, it remained through his family. Some of us, some of you, you might even today be experiencing consequences from the sins of your parents and your grandparents. I want to tell you, if some of you weren't blessed in being raised in a Christian home, being taught the Bible, learning about the Lord as a young age, that's sad from your parents. Your parents did not allow that opportunity for you as a young person to go to Sunday school, children's church, Wednesday night youth group, to be able to learn about Jesus. And you will pay the price for that. Children do. When mom and dad don't teach their children about the Lord, when mom and dad don't worship with the, come worship with their children, those children are experiencing the same pain that David's family experienced. You start having problems, and they grow up, and they make decisions that aren't biblical. Why aren't they biblical? Because they didn't learn what God wanted them to know. So this is, he starts to see his house, the house of David, is beginning to crumble after the sin with Bathsheba. That's what we see here. The sword will never leave your house. David had a son named Solomon, whose mother's actually Bathsheba. He becomes the next king of Israel. But do you know Solomon married 700 women? So had 700 wives, 300 concubines. And it says the women, because these were foreign women who did not worship the Lord, they turned his heart away from God. And he began to worship idols. And then the kingdom split after Solomon. You literally witnessed. And Solomon started out good. He was the wisest man on earth. But by the time he was old in his age, he had abandoned the Lord and the teachings and the worship of the Lord. David's sin, that one night stand with Bathsheba, the easy murder of Uriah, which who he thought was easily just going to be swept under the rug and no one would remember. No one will, everyone just move on. It began the crumble of his life. Something that seemed so quick and easy, it just had decades and centuries of ramifications to follow after David's reign. This is why for us, this is why they call sin generational. That's what generational sin is. It's when mom and dad make poor, ungodly decisions, and grandma and grandpa, and a lot of that for us is just not being raised in church, not being taught the Bible, not having biblical instruction for young people. And they grow up and they do not know the Lord. And that's what we're seeing right here. These these family members are rebelling against their father. So keep going here in your Bibles. Here We're going to read the last five verses. This is what the Lord said. So he took, he, he, he took a bath, he kills Uriah, he takes Bathsheba to be his own wife. 
This is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on you and your family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes. And he will sleep with them in broad daylight. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel and in broad daylight. God's, you know, God, is, God wants to expose sin, expose people. People who think they do things in secret. He's saying, you're not doing it in secret. I'm gonna, David did not want to be shamed. And God wanted to make sure David was shamed. He says, you did this sin in secret, but I'm going to expose it in broad daylight. Sin always comes to light. God makes sure that sin comes to light. He brings it up to let people know this person's a sinner. This is why this occurred. When we see sin come to light, that reminds us this is why some of these things happen. It's because of, because of their sinful choices against the Lord. Now, here is what we commend David for doing. Whenever we sin, the true victim of that sin is the Lord. It's not other people. Look what David says. David didn't make excuses. He didn't start trying to explain away what he was doing. When he is confronted by Nathan about what happened, he immediately recognized it. Look here in your Bible, verse 13. David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. Right there. He cried out, God, I am guilty. It is all on me. This isn't anything about Bathsheba, nothing about Uriah. I am the guilty one, and I alone. And then Nathan replied to David, and the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt, meaning you sinned against the Lord, in this matter, the son born to you will die. Then the Bible says, and Nathan went home. Just like that. This baby's going to die. You've sinned against the Lord, and your family's about to have a lot of problems. That's what, that was the, and then Nathan leaves. That was it for Nathan. We actually do see Nathan at David's bedside as he's dying in his very end to help Solomon become king. Those are the three times Nathan appeared to David. Nathan showed up here to rebuke David, and that's what prophets do. The Word of God rebukes and speaks truth in their life even when we sin. So what do we learn from Nathan confronting David? Here is this massive confrontation. And Psalm, Psalm 51 was actually written by David about this confrontation. We're not going to read it now. You can read it this afternoon. It talks about David's heart, how he repented. God shows grace to those who repent. He absolutely does. The Lord showed grace to David. David has to pay the price with his family and the loss of the little baby. But he still is king. God forgives him. God forgave him. And he moved, he moved along. Now, he had a lot of problems. But Lord, uh, Lord did forgive him of that. He did not have to die. Number two, repentant sin still has consequences. What we do in secret has public consequences. Even when you repent of that sin, and the Lord forgives you of that sin, forgiven sin still has consequences. We experience God's forgiveness and His cleansing, but there's the consequences still remain for David. And then this ties in with Jesus here. This is what we learn. David was a fallen, sinful king. David, he was a man after God's own heart, but he was also a wicked man too. Our perfect and holy king is Jesus. That is a king we look to. That is the one of perfection. And David in this story 
reminds us that when we are confronted with sin, when Nathan stands on our front porch and says, you are the man, you're the one who did all this. This story I just told David, this parable, it's actually about you. When we are confronted with sin, we want to respond just like David did. And he said, I have sinned against the Lord. That is the only appropriate response. And the moment you say that, when you say, I've sinned against the Lord, He is the true victim of sin, right away, and the Lord has taken away your sin. That's what Nathan said. You confess you're a sinner, a second later, the Lord confirms that He's taken away your sin. Just like that. That's why someone can get saved even on their deathbed. They can repent of their sin, turn to the Lord, and immediately they are saved. It happened with David. The Lord took away his sin. He no no longer held that against David. Now the consequences remain. We go out and make foolish decisions. The consequences are there. Sometimes you you have to serve time in jail. Sometimes you, you get beat up. Sometimes these things happen for your consequences. But the Lord forgives you for that. You are, for, you are clean before the Lord. You might have consequences with other men. But for us, when we've sinned, our only response is, God, I have sinned against you. I am guilty. And I want to tell you, this is how we actually get saved. Someone gets saved when they realize they are a sinner. They are confronted with their sin. Just like Nathan the prophet confronted David and they step back and realize, you know, I have, I have stolen the Passover lamb from this poor family. I've taken advantage of this person. I have committed adultery. I have murdered. I'm a thief. I have broken the God's law and His commandments. And our only appropriate response is to turn and cry out to the Lord. says, Lord, forgive me. Save me. Cleanse me. Lord, I am guilty. We as Christians, we can't be like Saul. When Saul was confronted with his sin by Samuel, the last advisor we looked at last week, what did he do? He made excuses. God told him what to do, and he did half of what he was supposed to do. And he tried to argue with Samuel, saying, well, I did half of it. I did some of it, maybe not all of it. There's no arguing, no making excuses to the Lord. So this morning, how I want to close our worship service. You, maybe you have been confronted just like David was confronted. You're confronted with your sin. The Lord has sent a Nathan in your life, maybe through this sermon, maybe someone this week, maybe a sermon you were listening to on YouTube, and you've been confronted with your sin, and God's speaking to you, and you need to repent of that and and acknowledge that you were guilty, and the Lord will forgive and cleanse you. That is our only appropriate response. And the way we want to do that is I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And this will be our sinner's prayer because some of you have never been saved. You've never confessed your sins to the Lord, repented of your sins, and received the cleansing that the Lord offers us. So here's how I want to close our worship service. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And maybe you need to get saved this morning. If you need to get saved, I'm going to to say a prayer. It's going to be a very similar prayer to what we just read from Nathan and David. And you follow along. You pray it silently. God can read your heart. He knows, what's, he knows your secret thoughts. He knows everything about you. 
You cry out to God and God will cleanse you. Dear God, I am a sinner. Just like, just like David, I have sinned against you. Lord, cleanse me. Lord, forgive me. Lord, pick me up again. Jesus, thank you for saving me. Thank you for dying on a cross. Thank you for raising again out of the tomb. Lord, from this day on, I'm yours. In Jesus' name I pray. Now, with every head bowed and every eyes closed, I don't want you to look up. If you said that prayer and you confess Christ as your Savior, we close our services with an invitation. Listen, Jesus calls us to publicly follow him. If Stephen can die, if he can get martyred publicly, and Jesus stand up in approval, we can publicly respond to Jesus. We want to be bold in our faith for the Lord. We don't want to be bashful. And I'm, what we're going to do is we're going to have our invitation. If you gave your life to Jesus this morning, Zach and I stand up front during our invitation. You walk down the aisle and say, Pastor, I got saved. I gave my life to Jesus. I want to get baptized next Sunday. I want to join the church. Whatever decision, this is our time we respond to God. And we're going to have that response. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So why don't we open up our eyes and we're going to stand up. And we're going to close our service with our, hymn of, our song of invitation. Beecher and Ryan are going to lead us in our song. I'll be standing right here. Zach's going to be right here. You come take our hand and say, I'm, I've made a decision to follow Jesus today. Mm-hmm.